0: Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. Wouldn't it be nice to have an omniscient financial advisor? You know, someone who could see into the future with crystal clear clarity and give you solid financial advice. For example, wouldn't it have been nice to have had a financial advisor in 2019 to tell you, hey, I'm anticipating a worldwide pandemic in the next year that will require social isolation? And there's this company called Zoom that just went public. Their online meeting platform is solid. Their stock is really gonna pop when this pandemic hits. A $100 investment in 2019 would have been worth almost $1,000 by October of 2020. A $1,000 investment would have been worth 10,000. A $10,000 investment would have been worth 100,000. Wouldn't it have been nice to have an omniscient financial advisor in August of 2004, some of you weren't born yet, but in August of 2004 to tell you, hey, the whole world is going to revolve around the internet really soon. And there's this search platform called Google. I know you probably haven't heard of it, but there's a search platform called Google that has a corner on the market I strongly advise you to buy at its initial public offering. A $100 investment would have been worth $6,350 today. A $1,000 investment would have been worth $63,500. A $1,000 investment would have been worth $635,000. $10,000 would have been worth $635,000. Wouldn't it have been nice to have a financial advisor in January of 2003 tell you, hey, there's a struggling computer company. It's called Apple. You know, they make the Macintoshes. But they have a new, I know they're not much now, but they have a new CEO. His name is Steve Jobs. He's an innovator. He's got a lot of great ideas, and he's going to turn this ship around. He's going to capture a generation. And I I suggest that you invest now. A $100 investment would be worth $69,000 today. A $1,000 investment would have been worth or would be worth $690,000. A $10,000 investment would be worth $6.9 million today. Wouldn't it have been nice to have a financial advisor in May of 1997 tell you, hey, there's this company that sells books online? It's called Amazon. It's not much now, but it's gonna expand and totally corner the market on online sales. Invest in it, do it now. A $100 investment then would be worth $250,000 today. A $1,000 investment then would be worth $2.5 million. A $10,000 investment would be worth $25 million today. It would be totally life-changing to have an omniscient investment advisor And I can hear what you're thinking from all the way up here. Mark, there is no such thing as an omniscient financial advisor, to which I would say, oh, you're mistaken. There is one. There is one who can see into the future with crystal clear clarity. His name is Jesus. And if you start listening to his investment advice now, you are going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams. Now, not rich as the world defines rich. Don't hear me wrong. But you are going to have true wealth. And his his advice is also going to rescue you from perhaps the most soul-crushing, life-destroying financial mistake that you could ever make. Hope that piqued your interest a little bit. Welcome to Fellowship National. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And as Gus said earlier, we're going to be jumping back into our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous Um, sermon ever preached by Jesus some 2,000 years ago on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And this morning, we come to the spot in the sermon where Jesus puts on his financial advisor hat. He begins to talk about money, and he's going to give us some life-altering advice that we would do well to put into practice today so that we don't have deep regrets later. What's his advice? I'm glad you asked. If you're taking notes, Jesus is going to give us two pieces of advice this morning something not to do and something to do. And then follow up with his reasoning for his advice. So let's look again at the passage that Hannah just read for us Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This investment advice from Jesus is fairly straightforward here. In verse 19, he tells us what not to do. In verse 20, he tells us what to do. Let's look at what not to do first. Investment advice part one. What is it? Do not stockpile for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, I don't recommend that particular investment vehicle. It's too short-sighted. It's too fragile. It's too prone to losses. If you store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, they're too vulnerable. They can be devoured. They can be destroyed. They can be corroded. They can be pilfered. And we know this to be true if you've lived long enough. Inflation can quickly erode the buying power of your savings account. A recession can quickly devour a huge chunk of your nest egg. Hackers can loot your cryptocurrency holdings. It's all temporary. It's all vulnerable. And Jesus wants us to steer clear of those dangerous investments. He wants us to put... He wants to steer us in the right direction for our investments. And he's about to remind us that our souls are made for eternity and we can't take any of our earthly wealth with us. None of the stuff we accumulate here ports to the next world. You'll never see a hearse, somebody put it cleverly, you'll never see a hearse towing a U-Haul. In light of eternity, none of it matters. In fact, we read scripture In Scripture, that in heaven, the streets are paved with what? Gold. You know, our most valuable asset or protective investment strategy here is just pavement. There is probably figurative language, but what's the point? It doesn't matter. It's not going to be worth it in the long haul. We're just going to walk on it someday without giving it a second thought. Do not stockpile treasures for yourselves here on earth, Jesus advises. Okay then, Jesus, as our financial advisor, where would you have us allocate our resources? Well, Jesus says, I want you to make a currency exchange of sorts. Your current currency is going to be worthless in the not-too-distant future. When my kingdom comes in its fullness, they won't take American Express, I want you to invest where it's durable, where it lasts. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. So here's part two of Jesus' investment advice. Pretty straightforward. Do what? Do stockpile for yourselves treasures in heaven. Evidently, there's two ways to live. We can live with a view of accumulating valuable things on this temporal earth, or we can live with the view of accumulating valuable things in the eternal kingdom of heaven. Now, the question is probably forming in your mind, well, how do you do that? How do we store up treasure in heaven, Jesus? Would Would you tell us, please? How do we stockpile treasure where investments are durable, protected, guaranteed, You know, Jesus doesn't exactly spell it out plainly here in this passage, but if we look at other places in the gospel, he makes it crystal clear. So we're going to jump around just a little bit here. Let's go over to Luke chapter 12, and we find Jesus telling a parable there. Let's read this together. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's the focus of this man's life? Try to make it pretty plain. <laughs> himself. But when you have eye problems, eye 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 eye, eye your perspective on life is going to be blurry. And this sounds eerily similar to the American retirement system. Now before that gets too convicting let's read on. Verse 20. But God said to him, "You fool, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be?" So it is so it is the one who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich towards God. What does God call the person who primarily focuses on themselves with their earthly wealth? What does he call them? A fool, a fool. That's strong language. So we can learn from this that focusing on oneself and accumulating more stuff for your own significance, security, and satisfaction on earth is the opposite of storing up treasures in heaven. So we can define it by its opposite with this picture. We get even more clarity of what it means to store up treasures in heaven from an interaction that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. This guy has everything going for him in the first century. He has Wealth, he has uh, power, he has health, and yet he still feels this empty void in his soul, and so he runs up to Jesus, falls down on his knees and, and asks Jesus how to solve it. Mark 10 is where it's in several recorded in several gospels. Let's look at the, the episode in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 through 22. And Jesus, looking at him I love this part loved him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have, what? Treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus is quite explicit here what it means to store up treasures in heaven. How's it done? By giving stuff away, by being generous, by blessing those in need but this rich young ruler wouldn't do it. Just think about it. If this guy had said yes to Jesus right here, how many disciples might have there been? When we do the list of disciples, we would know this guy's name. Jesus said, come follow me, just like he did to the others. He gave this guy a chance to get out on the ground floor as an eternal investment advisor. Said, come follow me. You'll have treasures in heaven. You'll deal with that ache in your soul because you were made for something more than money. Jesus invited this guy into relationship with himself to be one of his disciples that traveled along with him. But this guy didn't make the trade, he wouldn't make the exchange. Instead, he went away with great sadness. Why? Because his heart was possessed by his possessions. When Jesus looked at this man, what did he do? He loved him. And when you love someone, you can tell them hard truth. He looked at him, loved him, and saw past the surface of this man's success and into this man's heart and he recognized that riches had become this man's God. He recognized that this, what his wealth had become an idol in this man's life and so Jesus told him to sell his possessions, give them to the poor. You know, Jesus wasn't after this guy's money. He was after his heart. He wasn't trying to modify this man's behavior. He was trying to change this man's God. He was trying to alter this man's worship. So storing up treasures in heaven can be summed up fairly succinctly. Say this out loud with me. Making God your treasure and being generous with your resources. Okay, say that one more time. Making God your treasure and being generous with your resources with your stuff. You know, our omniscient investment advisor says, don't stockpile for yourselves treasures on earth. Do stockpile for yourselves treasures in heaven by making God your treasure and being generous with your stuff. And as any good financial advisor will do, Jesus doesn't just tell us advice and blindly expect us to follow it. He tells us why. He's giving us this advice in verse 21. Read this out loud with me, would you? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why does Jesus care so much about what we do with our resources? Because as an omniscient financial advisor who looks at us and loves us just as much as he did that rich young ruler, he knows something that we might not be aware of. He knows that our investments aren't ultimately about our earthly assets. That's secondary. Our investments are much more importantly about our hearts. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, here's the reasoning behind his investment advice. Where you put your wealth is where you point your worship. Where you put your wealth is where you point your worship. You know, I have a worship leader friend named Carl Carti. some of you know him, who defines worship as the mind's attention and the heart's affection. That's a really good definition. The mind's attention, the heart's affection. But based on the words of Jesus here, I think that definition is missing just one thing. And here's how I would add to Carl's definition. Worship is the mind's attention, the heart's affection, and what? The wallet's direction. My friends, your bank statement is a window into what you're worshiping. Your credit card bill is a barometer for where you're seeking your significance, your security, your satisfaction. If you want to see what someone is really worshiping, look at the direction of their money. Where is it going? Where is it flowing? Where is it being spent? Are you seeking your significant security and satisfaction in God, or are you seeking it somewhere else? For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Now, Jesus backs up his investment rationale here with two illustrations in the following verses. The first one has to do with the eyes. The second has to do with a master, two different masters. Let's look at these two illustrations quickly before we talk more about how to apply specifically Jesus' investment advice to our lives. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Perfectly clear. Actually, no, it's a little bit confusing. Um, So let me see if I can shed some light on it, pun intended. This ancient... Idiomatic expression doesn't translate well into English. But in first century Judaism, the eye was considered to be somewhat of a two-way window into the inner person. Um, um, It's a two-way window between the inner person and the outside world. They believed that the eye not only let, let light in so that you could see clearly and act accordingly, but also that the eye let light out. In other words, you could tell what was going on inside a person by observing their eyes. They, they, they believed that the eyes were a window into the soul. And this makes sense. You know, if you, if you want to know if somebody is lying to you or not, where do you look? Into their eyes. If you want to know what someone is desirous as, of, how can you tell? Where do you look? You look at their eyes. In fact, sales, good salespeople are trained to look at people's eyes when they're in conversation with them, to see what they're looking at, what they're desirous of, what their hearts are gravitating towards. What are they attracted by? Oh, yeah, that one's on sale. I can make you a deal on that. The eye is a window into the soul. What Jesus is saying here is that if your eye is healthy, and the Greek word translated healthy carries somewhat of a double meaning, and I think it's an intended double meaning, being undivided in the physical sense or in the more ethical sense, being generous or sincere. And I think both are packed into what Jesus is talking about here in this, in this idiom. If your eye is undividedly generous It will lovingly gaze upon or desire what is good and then you'll be filled with light and you'll be on the right path. You won't stumble around in the darkness. A healthy eye looks on the world with generous love and is therefore full of light. You'll be able to see clearly. But if your eye is bad... It will look on the world with greed and lust and discontentment and is therefore full of darkness. The ancient Semitic peoples called this the evil eye. And that's the language Jesus is using here. If your eye is evil, if it's the, lust, it's the lustful eye, the ravishing, wanting, desirous, selfish eye, it's the eye that's always out for whatever it can get. Jesus is saying there's two ways to see the world. Two ways to live. You can walk through life with an evil eye trying to take whatever you can get for yourself, in which case your sight will be darkened and your soul will be destroyed and distorted by that darkness. Or you can walk through life with an undivided eye for what you can give to the world. Instead of looking to your own interests, you'll be looking to the interests of others. And when you do, your eyes are what Jesus calls healthy. They are wide open to spiritual realities, not just physical ones. They are open to see heaven in addition to earth. And your soul becomes illuminated, full of light, and you can see clearly and live in a sure-footed way. In other words, what we look at, what we're desirous of, shapes us on the inside. What we see is what we savor. What we gaze upon, or long for, or worship shapes the character of our inner lives much more than what we realize. So the I is the first illustration that Jesus uses to support his investment advice. His second illustration is found in verse 24. Let's quickly read that together. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God. And money. You will always serve what you worship, and you can't have two lords in your life. To succinctly sum up, for the sake of time, what Jesus is saying here with his eye and master illustrations, I've tried to, to, to condense it into three phrases, okay? Would you say this out loud with me? What you look for is what you long for. What you long for is what you live for. And what you live for is your Lord. What you look for is what you long for. What you long for is what you live for. And what you live for is your Lord. Back in 2005, David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address at Kenyon College that kind of went viral before viral was a thing. Um, he's since, um, he's, he's no longer with us. He committed suicide a couple years later, actually. Here's an excerpt of what he said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason to maybe choose some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll never ever you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid a fraud on the edge, on the verge of always being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing pretty sure David Foster Wallace was not a believer in Jesus, but his insight into the human condition is pretty incredible. As human beings, we are hardwired to worship. It's how we were created. It's why we were created. It's impossible for us not to worship. So if we don't worship the God who created us for the purpose of worshiping him, what are we going to do? We're inevitably going to worship something else. If we don't worship the creator, we're going to worship something in the creation. It's just how we're hardwired. Something else will capture our mind's attention and our heart's affection and our wallet's direction. And you will serve what you worship. It will become your master and you will become its slave. Because idols always enslave and demand your very life. If you worship your career, you'll give your life to have it. If you worship fame, you will give your life to have that. If you worship wealth, you'll give your life to have it. If you worship stuff, you'll give your life to have it. It will master you hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year after year, you will trade your life, one precious life, a little at a time, in exchange for a small pile of earthly treasures. And it will cost you everything you have. But did you know that Jesus is the only master who you can serve, who will actually give you your life back? How do I know? He says as much in Mark 8, chapter 35. Mark chapter 8, verses 35 and 36 whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. Counterintuitive. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? When you give your everything to Jesus, you get more than everything back. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Jesus says that's too short-sighted but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven why Jesus because where you put your wealth is where you point your worship and what you worship has consequences that reverberate into eternity so the land the plane with some practical advice on what to do or some practical application on what to do with this investment advice from this omniscient financial advisor two words Say them out loud with me. Say it like you mean it. One of the most ironic things about our culture is the location of the phrase, in God we trust. Where's that printed? On our money. On the main thing that we trust in as Americans instead of God to bring us power, to bring us control, to bring us approval, to bring us comfort, to bring us the gods that we're really, really worshiping on a hard level. Instead, my friends, instead of being typical Americans who love God and use money, I'm sorry, flip that around, who love money and use God, you know where this is going now, Jesus calls us to become followers who love God and use money. People who live selflessly, give generously, and worship who we are created to worship. Well, how do we do this? I don't think there's any other way than reminding ourselves over and over and over again of the generosity that God has given to you and to me What's the phrase, first phrase at the top of the tagline in our lobby? We are a gospel-centered church. That's why we are. Without the gospel, we would be stingy, selfish people. We are a gospel-centered church. Our only hope of living selflessly, giving generously, and worshiping rightly is to regularly remind ourselves of the fact that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. And that is what we are. My friends, as sons and daughters of the God of the universe, we have an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We are kingdom citizens. We don't need earthly wealth. We already have it made in life. We are rich beyond our wildest dreams. We don't money, need money to give us power. We have the power of God dwelling inside of us let that sink in we don't need money to give us comfort we have a savior who has promised to never leave us or forsake us we don't need money to give us approval we already have been declared righteous and fully loved in christ we don't need money to give us control we serve a sovereign god who holds our future we have every reason in the world to treasure god and use our money to bless others to love God and use money rather than use God because we're loving money. And one of the common questions I get asked as a pastor involves giving. People will often ask me, how much should I give to the church? Should I tithe off the gross or the net? Before taxes, after taxes. And my common response is that Jesus never commands New Testament believers to tithe. Did you know that? He never does. It's an Old Testament principle. But for New Testament believers, if I'm reading the scriptures right, that's thinking too small. That's checking off a list. That's giving God a percentage so that you can feel good about calling the other 90% yours. God doesn't want your tithe. He wants your heart. And when he has your heart, you won't need to ask about a percentage because you will give joyfully and generously and sacrificially, recognizing that 100% of what you have is God's already, and you're just a steward of it. You're just a steward of it. In this temporary small life, we're holding this stuff with eternal riches waiting for us. What should we do with it? Make the exchange. Get in on the ground floor of eternal wealth. Generosity is what we're called to. And generosity is always sacrificial. It involves giving something up. And this is what Jesus calls us to. Because that's what he did for us when he laid down his life in our place, on our behalf. So my friends, give generously, generously. As a reflection of how God has given generously to you. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, I just want to ask one practical question. A hook to hang the message on. Here it is. Do I spend more time thinking about stuff to accumulate or people to bless? This was convicting to me as I wrote it this week. Do I spend more time thinking about stuff to accumulate or people to bless? If it's the former rather than the latter, what are some ways you can start loosening your grip on this temporary stuff by giving more resources away? You don't have to do it through our church. Our church is a great way to practice giving because then we can pool our resources, or God's resources, I should say, to, to bless others here in our city and to extend the reach of the gospel throughout the world through our global partnerships with God's sacrificial and generous love for you in Jesus at the front of your minds. Start praying. God, where do you want me to direct these resources, your resources, to bless others? Speaking of our global partners, it's hard to believe, but December 1st will be here in 54 days. Weather's starting to feel like it. One of our traditions in the church is our global Christmas offering where we intentionally spend less on ourselves so that we can give more to extend the reach of the gospel around the world. Would you begin praying now, 54 days in advance before we start announcing it on Sunday? Would you begin praying now, God, what can I give up? Maybe it's a coffee this week. Maybe it's a fancy meal out. Maybe it's fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. What can I give up sacrificially so that I can give more? To generously bless others. We are the richest people in the world financially. Even the poorest, or you call yourself poor as a college student or something like that here, you're still in the top 1% globally. Let that sink in. To whom much is given, much is required. My friends, give generously. We have an omniscient financial advisor who thinks that's a really, really good investment. Father, thank you for these words from Jesus. As Americans, we need to hear them. And we need to let them sink into our hearts because we so often love money and use you rather than the other way around. It's an American idol. Father, as our hearts are convicted by these words from Jesus, Lord, I, I pray that we would not feel guilt for we have been forgiven in Christ, but that we would feel joy that we have been forgiven. And may that joy begin to transform us from the inside out, to loosen our grip on stuff, to recognize we're rich beyond our wildest dreams already, and none of this ports to, to your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to make the currency exchange with joy, like finding a treasure in a field and then selling all that we have. Lord, loosen our grip on our stuff. Tighten our grip on treasuring you. Amen.